Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Crystal Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. My guests today are the co-creators and executive executive producers yeah. of um, AMC's Halt and Catch Fire, uh, Chris Cantwell and Chris Rogers. Um, thanks for coming in, guys. Thanks for, thanks having, for us. having us. You know, this was a show that I just watched. I thought I was the only one. I loved it. You know, I just totally got <laughs> you it. You were the only one. I, I totally, no, but I mean, in, in the sense that, in the sense that, like, it wasn't something I was watching with my friends or my wife. It was just, for some, it was just, I just enjoyed watching it late at night and uh, it just kind of hit all the things that I wanted. And then something happened, like, you know, it was two episodes left in, in season three. Mm. And it suddenly became something that I was thinking a lot about in terms of writing and, and, and looking at. And it, that, I, the thing that's so interesting to me is about how this show has evolved, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think the way that season four is, is just remarkable, which is your last season, yep. and it's over. It, it was, and some of the things that you did there were just so interesting in terms of how this story has evolved. I, I'm curious, let's just start. AMC, what was the original pitch? What was the original conception of, of this? I'm assuming, I mean, just oh, yeah. my, my whole thing was the way as a consumer I was pitched was this felt like, you know, Joe McMillan's the new Don <laughs> Draper, but we're now in the birth of the computer age. This is, this is Don Draper meets Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and, we're gonna, and, and it's going to be this kind of fun thing like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that was, yeah, I mean, that was a, not far off. pretty much yeah. what it was. I mean, yeah. Chris and I wrote that pilot on spec, mm-hmm. right? So it was uh, us huddled in our uh, office together at Disney where we were working uh, in social media marketing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had come out of writing programs, and we wrote a pilot together, and we had, we had representation, and they told us to write something else to try to staff. Um, so we wrote this, and, and uh, you know, it wasn't just the, the, the male anti-hero archetype, you know, it was, it was also drawn from um, a lot of my dad's personal experience in the computing industry in Texas in the early 80s. So that really informed the setting and I think gave us the ground level way in. Um, but, but yeah, I think we, we initially conceived the show, at least in the pilot, around mm-hmm. Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, then we built out Gordon and we, we had this idea for... Um, a two-hander at that point, I think, as we started to develop yeah, it. Yeah, and I, and I think maybe even to suggest how far it's come. I mean, I remember us in the, before we even knew what we were going to write next, kind of saying like, oh, well, we love Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. We'd like to write something that's like men under pressure. Like, well, what's another place that people are like under pressure? Like, what's another take on like the hospital or the precinct or like the, the things you've seen? Yeah. And we kind of felt like there was a unique way in because your dad had lived in this world and then we you yeah. know, kind of used research to kind of situate it. But it was, you know... The idea that it was going to be this ensemble thing that was very yeah. kind of female character forward, uh, you know, that, like you said, it was an evolution. Yeah. I mean, one of the things is uh, there's also, I mean, one of the things, there's so many enjoyable things here, but there, it, you get this little history uh-huh. that has been, that is impacting our lives so much now. Yeah. You know, and even I am, I, I imagine younger viewers, but even I was like, I bear, you know, I kind of remember the Apple IIe and that, like, kind of like, you know, I was of that generation where it was like kind of those, those first personal Apples were kind of, mm-hmm. but I mean, this even goes further back to that and all these different benchmarks. So there's, there's, there's a fun aspect of this, like, deep research that also has this fun story. Like, our char- your characters are kind of working against this history, which also kind of mm-hmm. gives it this fatalism, too, because we kind of know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's funny because we talked about this, like if there were ever a show 
uh, said in the 80s that you know if you were going to set it in an industry computers just felt like such fertile ground because there had not been a show about the computer mm. business you know i remember i remember pirates of silicon valley with noah wiley and uh was it anthony michael hall mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And it, i mean but that was there wasn't much and then i guess the social network had come out a couple of years before but you know the computer industry and like the birth of that dramatizing that was was incredibly fun for us and then it was fun for us just to go to, you know, I remember going to the L.A. Public Library downtown, the central branch, and just checking out a ton of books and getting all the books that were written at that time about the industry, not just stuff looking backwards, but stuff about, stuff that was predictive, right? You know, IBM's one, you know, like right. books like right. that, or Steve Jobs is, is king, you know, and, and like all those things that changed. And I think in the research it suggested an industry that just, really reinvented itself from one day to the next. And I think that was the most exciting part of the industry for it, us. Writing a story, too, that, that's kind of based in reality also just gives you some, I don't know, some like tent poles to kind of fly within. And, and I think as opposed to that being kind of restrictive, you know, because you could just make a space opera otherwise, I, I think it helps you make some choices. Um, and I've always, I don't know, I've always liked that about kind of operating in the real world where we, you know, wanted to fly close to actual events, you know, create what wasn't an alternate history, something that could have kind of coexisted. Um, I think that was one of those restrictions that kind of was additive and kind of kept us honest. So, yeah, That's, a, I think, a tricky thing um, in that sense that you very much are, you, I mean, obviously you're basing it on the real history, but you're also involved, you know, the different turning points here, you know, it, it, you're using the real companies and the mm-hmm. real, you know, you've got Yahoo in season four mm-hmm. and you kind of, you, you, you can see what's going to happen to the SFNet and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Gore pushing through legislation, yep. and you kind of you can you, you, you kind of I'm I'm sitting there every once in a while looking up Wikipedia, being like I'm trying to remember where you know. <laughs> right. But I mean that also gives you a structure because there's a race with these characters. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get there first, and there is this element of an audience knows. Okay, part of it is they're right. They're mm-hmm. on most right. of the time. They're on to something, and then so you're like, okay, come on. And then the obstacles in their way so often are their interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And you're like, if these four people can just get together and <laughs> right, yeah. realize that they have everything they need, uh, not only in terms of uh, the direction, but their talent level and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you, you suddenly you're, you're, you're looking forward to where it's going, but then also uh, that interpersonal stuff, which is really at the heart of this, becomes that much more geared towards... Oh, yeah. The drama. Yeah. Chris and I talked about how the show moved from being kind of a workplace drama in the first couple of seasons to being a family drama mm-hmm. in the last two. I think especially in season four, these five characters were this de facto family that had chosen each other. Mm-hmm. And they were they were orbiting each other, whether they liked to or not. And they were bringing so much baggage and history with them, but they just couldn't, they couldn't quit each other yeah. in some way. Um and uh, yeah, a lot of that gets in the way of the of the business. But you know, and, and but what, what the one of the central tenets that we found in researching the business story from when we started, you know, because we we went back, you know, to the late '70s to the mid '90s, you know, just so we understood where we were, was that there were so many of these people that were groping around in the dark that were almost there. Mm-hmm. Like for every one Steve Jobs, there's a hundred people who had some incarnation of the personal computer or the search website or or an online network that didn't quite congeal. And, and those people were the ones that were fascinating to mm-hmm. us. And we, we wanted to focus our story on, on uh, folks like that. 
I feel like I, we were always fond too of the idea that, you know, in each season, obviously we're kind of setting an arena, whether that be search engines or personal computers, but to kind of have that linear story that most people will assume we're going to tell mm. and then to try to kind of thwart that. Um, b because I think with the history being out there, there is always the risk that people are like, okay, I see what you're doing. Um, and I think we took a lot of pleasure in, in trying to kind of find little left turns or kind of like lesser known sub-histories uh, to, to kind of get us to the same destination, but yeah. in a different way. Yeah. You know, I'm realizing, and we're eight minutes into this, and I should have done this in the beginning, uh, this is a three Chris podcast. <laughs> the Chris that just spoke was Chris Rogers, mm -hmm. and the previous was Chris Cantwell. Just so we have, a, yes, we don't. I'm Chris we just, Cantwell. Yeah, yeah. So we have the we have the voices. So if you say anything uh, offensive during this <laughs> podcast, I don't want to get the emails about it. Um, <laughs> the um, huge. So let's talk about. Obviously, all shows evolve, you know, you know, and and the relationships that you're portraying evolve. But in terms of some of the fundamental changes of this show, kind of big picture. You know, what, what, what were kind of some of the triggers for that? When, when did those happen? Is that, was that just something that kind of naturally evolved? You were talking about mm -hmm. becoming a more female-forward show. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, what, what you do with the Joe character becomes, you know, it kind of gets a little bit off that anti-hero mm -hmm. uh, bandwagon for a little bit. Well, I feel like, you know, I think we benefited from being... I think we learned from a generation of great TV. You know, I think we knew the anecdote coming into this show about Vince Gilligan deciding to completely shift the course of Breaking Bad when he saw how good the chemistry between Brian Cranston and, um, and the Jesse character was. Um, and so when we went to our pilot, I think it was with the intention of kind of seeing what was really working and what was popping. And mm -hmm. so, so I think we really tried to kind of listen to the show and kind of write into things that we, we found exciting. The Bosworth character certainly was illuminated by Toby Huss in a way that was a million times better than anything we put on the page. Um, you know, Carrie Bechet is someone who I think started the show with a more minor role and then that performance just demanded more screen time. Um, and, and so that kind of became our MO throughout the seasons was to kind of listen to what was keeping us excited, what we liked. I think that took us to mutiny, you know. Uh, um, and, and that kind of uh, responsive relationship with the show kind of became our, our guiding principle and I still swear by it you know because I think the thing wants to tell you the answer is it if you're willing to listen versus impose on it this idea that it has to be you know the Don Draper of tech mm -hmm. I think I think one thing to our credit because when we started we were <laughs> super young and we didn't really know what we were doing mm -hmm. but I think we we were careful enough to lay in these little grenades into each character uh, and I think we we soon happened upon in that first writer's room ways to explode those archetypes that had come before us. And I think that became mm -hmm. something that we were really excited about. So we had, we had Joe, but we were able to kind of detonate him from the inside out and show a guy who maybe didn't have it all figured out and who wasn't convinced himself deep down um, and actually was a very fragile human being underneath the surface. And I think, you know, same thing with Gordon, where we were able to take the guy who was, you know, kind of the, the beset upon nerdy, you know, engineer sometimes relegated to the shadows character and, and see like a, a strong father and an alpha male at times. And and then, you know, Carrie's fixing the speak and spell in the pilot. We were able to build an entire story out of that character and create a, a, a central protagonist of the show out of the fact that she was an engineer with her dreams deferred. You know, I think all those characters, you know, exploding those archetypes from the inside out really served us well. And then we just started doing it with everything on the show, you know, in terms of the company they were at, or where they, what city they were in. You know, we just kept overhauling it, and I think that was fun. 
Because there is an element also, and it, you did it very well. I don't want to, there's nothing I want to knock about the, the, the first part, it, but there is something in terms of exploring that um, that's, that is limiting if Joe, if everything is in reaction to Joe. Mm-hmm. If right. everything is, is he's driving. And there was a wonderful dynamic with him because you could see he had this part figured out, but he needed them. Mm-hmm. But there was the ego. Yeah. And so, but the, but, it was, but the thing was is that it seemed as if so much of the plot was driven by like how much he could upset the apple cart. You right. know, it's like, right. it was kind of this yeah. thing. He was, he was kind of constantly a one man instigating event, you know, that could, that mm-hmm. could do it. And, and, and by kind of breaking him a little bit and having to read, it became mm-hmm. this thing where all the different relationships could, could kind of bubble to the top rather be than being in a supporting role, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, th- I think you can see us in the first season, uh, speaking to Chris's point about our greenness, just being like, oh my God, we have a TV show. What happens on a TV show? Like, you know, you, you write a pilot, you know, you and, and maybe you write a Bible and you have an idea of kind of where, where you're going to go. But um, in my mind, at least the narrative is, I feel like we were really kind of trying to copy shows we loved in the beginning but about halfway through that season, we kind of found our own voice. And I think that was a little less, I don't know. Uh, I see us starting to make moves that are like moves we like. Uh, and I feel like that's a direct reaction to us just kind of settling in and, and kind of realizing <laughs> that, that we get to do what we want and, and having a little bit more confidence. I mean, I think the second season really proceeds from that place. But I think a lot of that's what you're talking about, this kind of idea of, I don't know, blowing things up and kind of seeing what's left over and realizing that the idea is to, you know, spend all your money story-wise. Because you were new and didn't have um, the resume, I mean, AMC had put a lot of faith in, in letting you guys take, not only in doing the show, but taking the role that you had early on mm-hmm. in the show. What does that conversation happen? What is that conversation like? Because, I mean, obviously you're not going to just do this in a vacuum. Yeah, you know, we developed with the network for a year, just us and them. And I think that to their great credit, they realized that they had two young guys who were going to take any note they they gave us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're they're all, you know, we were basically working with with Susie Fitzgerald and, and Ben Davis at the time. And, uh, you know, they realized that they needed they needed someone to come in with senior experience and kind of guide them creatively. And so the first people they brought us were Melissa Bernstein and Mark Johnson, who had just done Breaking Bad for them, mm-hmm. uh, or were in the middle of it. They were about mm-hmm. to finish it. And uh, having Melissa and Mark come in was tremendous for us because mm-hmm. not only were they um, advocates for us with the network, because we were just two new guys, you know, mm-hmm. that they, you know, Melissa and Mark can wave the Emmy around <laughs> in their face and be like, hey, you know, I, I think that, that that helps, but they they were also just very sharp and experienced, and they were able to look at what we had done and all the drafts. And I remember Melissa saying, the first thing I want to do is go back to three drafts ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and we went, oh, that you can do that? You know, and I think that that's that was a really a really good feeling. And then, you know, once once we went through the the process of them deciding to make the pilot, you know, them saying, okay, now we're going to give you guys a showrunner, and they brought in John Lisko, who you know, and you know, this, the, this industry is littered with, with stories of creators and showrunners never getting along, mm-hmm. and, and ours couldn't be farther from the mm-hmm. truth. We just tremendously fortunate that it was John, mm-hmm. and you know, he taught us everything. He was fully transparent with us, and he wanted it to be our vision, but he also wanted it to come across right and be performed right in its process, and, and you know, 
he was an expert at that. And so. thank God. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, we would have just would have driven it into the ground. I mean, like, or a, like a mountain. God, yeah. I don't know, almost immediately without that guy. It would have been a space opera. I think it's, it's the process of going from a writer who gets notes and is like, oh, you caught me. All of this is wrong. I'll change it. To, I feel like what Granvia did was really give us the confidence to say, no, like this, this is working. You know, I, I think they just want you to explain it more. I think you just have to help people understand. Uh, and Lisco is a guy that, you know, I think kind of did that for us in an interpersonal way. Uh, because the hardest thing about going to a writer's room is, you know, you're sitting there with a bunch of very intimidating writers from other good shows, and you're going to pitch ideas, and they're not all going to be great. Uh, and you have to learn to separate that from people not liking you. And that took uh, years. Yeah, you, you guys held on to a lot of the same writers, right? We did. Oh, yes, yeah, because we, we loved them. We just yeah. it was we had a rule of thumb with Jonathan, which was you got to love them on the page. Mm-hmm. And every writer we brought in, we really did. And you know, he ran the culture in that room was fantastic. And we just we just ran his playbook once he departed for Animal Kingdom, and you know picked up that baton of just making it fun. <laughs> the it one hiccup, yeah, it absolutely has to yeah. be fun. And the one hiccup being that the year that we became showrunners when, when John oh, yeah. departed, all of our writers were just unavailable because they had been successful and they were like directing movies or had their own shows to run and so we had to kind of restaff from the ground up. But uh, I feel like we found a, a group of equally awesome people. The four season is kind of like almost an all-star team of, of some folks from the first lineup and the second lineup. But, yeah. uh, so, so I want to skip forward to season three, uh, episode eight, which was, wow. which was I, I think I have this right. You'll know what I'm talking about in a minute. And in the midst of it, towards the end, there is an enormous jump of time oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and a big omission. Uh-huh. And suddenly, two of our characters are divorced. Mm-hmm. And or your characters, not my characters. I, they're my characters too. <laughs> but um, but um, and and there 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 is a there is a reset to, to some to some degree. Um, I guess first off, I, I'm wondering um, what what I want to talk about the aftermath and everything that happens from there to the finale later after this. But I'm just that. That decision and, and what happened in that episode, what, what spurred that? Is that something that you'd always kind of thought you'd want to do um, and reset? Did you know that you had once? Did you know that suddenly you had one season left? Um, what was? No, I, I you know, it, Chris and I, we 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 kind of try to park enough little threads in the end of a season where it could either conclude and we're good, but if there are places to go, there are places to go if we if we get to pick it up, and I, we do this weird thing where we. You know, before uh, each season begins in earnest in the writer's room, we'll go out to Joshua Tree and we'll, we rent a little house and we just, just the sit there, yeah. just the two of us, mm-hmm. and we'll uh, talk about the process uh, between the two of us and then we'll just dig in deep into the show. And we'll just bring a bunch of ideas of where we want to go in the season. And I remember going out there when we found out we got picked up for season three and we had set up all this amazing stuff with Mutiny where they had just moved mm-hmm. to California. And we just wanted to do a direct pickup from that because there was so much going on there with Gordon working there and all of those things. Um, and Joe having you know, stolen the antivirus software. But then we didn't know, we also were excited about where the industry was going. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted, we loved the idea of ending the season with World Wide Web. You know, that to us was what a great technical piece of information that we could drop as opening the door to modernity, right? 
And, and a great setup for season four. And a great setup AMC. for season four, you, of course. How could you not want to do But you could have also answer. ended it there and yeah. been like, and they got to the web, you know? Yeah. Um, but we looked, and there was this weird, and no offense to anybody who worked in tech from 86 <laughs> to 90, yeah, but there yeah. was this weird doldrums oh, kind yeah. of dry spell of, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know, like it was, you know, and there was some cool stuff. It was like, was it Cisco Systems and... You know those guys we like spent Sandy a lot Lerner. Of time reading about routers. We're like, let's do yeah. routers for season three. It's like, oh god, you know, like it was as exciting routers as it are. Yeah. I'm sure people <laughs> who work in routers are like, routers are it. But like for us, it was, it was tough to to get there just for a, a wider audience. So we decided let's do both, and we just got greedy, and we're like, let's do the mutiny storyline, and really take us through '86 or whatever it is in uh, in San Francisco, and then. You know, then let's just jump four years. Like, and then I think that we, it, it was where we were going to jump was the thing that we kept playing with, and how much time we were going to yeah. jump. Sometimes we were going to jump to eighty nine. Sometimes we thought about jumping to ninety one, and we ended up on December nineteen ninety. We're pretty devoted to the idea that you don't tread water with the, with the story. Like, like if the audience sees something coming, you know, you need you need to get there first. You know, so, so I think we really wanted to kind of like. I think in each season you'll see that we have an episode eight or an episode seven that would be the penultimate episode of, a, of another series. Uh, you know, so we kind of believe in getting there when you get there, and then put yourself in the the difficult position of having additional episodes after that. And I think that really served us well um, in all of the last three seasons. And yeah, I mean that that was a, a thing of faith was like hopefully we can get to WWW. And and what ended up being great about it, I, I think, was the fact that the first time period ends in such tragedy that you also need to believe that passage of time, yeah. uh, you know, uh, happened so that people could see each other again, like to play fair with it. Because I, I think, you know, it ends with, <laughs> not to spoil anything, but, you know, some personal tragedy that if they were all to get together kind of a month later and be like, let's give it another go, that, would, that wouldn't <laughs> really feel honest yeah. with the character <laughs> drama. Well, um, well, the other thing about it is the, the omission in terms of the personal, mm. you know, um, Donna and Gordon. You know, we saw the dynamic, you, you know, mutiny wasn't going to save their, or the mutiny move to California wasn't going to save their relationship. Mm-hmm. It was all there. I mean, and it was this thing where I don't know that we needed to see the divorce. I don't think we needed yeah. to see, yeah. I, I think they, they knew where they were going. And sometimes in those cases, from a writing standpoint, the omission is more powerful because mm-hmm. the audience has filled in that. Ba- not only do we not need episodes of the divorce, but we also, um, it's more you know, by making those connections of like kind of what happened there at the end of Mutiny and there, we connect them and it's almost more powerful that we fill them in our head and, and do that. It, it, it reinvigorated the relationship. I know that sounds weird to say that a divorce would reinvigorate a relationship, but for those two characters, it gave us new places to go. Because now they're divorced, but maybe now they can be friends again, right? And the passage of time allowed things to maybe settle and, and heal mm-hmm. uh, and have things change between the two of them. And I, I think that that was a, a nice tool to deploy, to just take them somewhere else, you know, because so often, we talk about this a lot in the writer's room, that relationships can fall into a binary pattern. Mm-hmm. They're together, and they're not together. They hate each other, they like each other. Uh, and you and flip you can that also, switch. You can, as an audience member, you can also see, oh, it's time for this relationship yeah. to, and this alliance. When the writing's on the wall, yeah. like, I remember, like, as much as I love Six Feet Under, I remember, like, Brenda and Nate, like, in season two or three, where every episode was just like, it's just not working. And you're like, <laughs> Just do it. Like, break up. Do something. Um, and I think that, you know, we just wanted to 
change it up. And I think mm -hmm. that it helped, it helps the writing. It gives mm -hmm. you more places to go. Um, when did you know that you had a season four and when did you know that it was the last one? Uh, were, you done, were you done with three? At the same time, to be honest. Yeah. It was a really funny phone call because um, we were done with three, but we were feeling good about three, you know, in a way that uh, we, we certainly, like, never took a next season for granted with this show early on. Um, you know, but I think three felt undeniable to us in a way as it was kind of coming together. It, it certainly was a joy to make. Um, and so we were feeling better about our odds than we ever had. Um, and AMC, God bless them, didn't have to give us that season four, you know, based on ratings, based on some of the things that people use to decide whether or not a show should come back. Um, so they called us and said, you know, we're going to give you this opportunity to kind of end it on your own terms. But the way the phone call was structured was definitely such that they were like, we're going to do a four season. And I'm pretty sure I went, yeah. And then they're like, but we're going to ask you to write the conclusion. And I was like, oh, OK. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Write it to conclusion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was incredibly generous. I just, yes. I just remember like feeling like, I just if I could have held my yay, <laughs> this would be a much more consistent oh, response. Oh, um, but that is cool. a gift, by the way. Like, like I think the show ended when it it should have. I think we we didn't slip into, we didn't have to jump any sharks. Uh, I, I think we got to kind of spend all of our character money, as it were, in the last season. We really tried to kind of leave it all on the table. Yeah. Um, I don't know where we would have gone in season five, yeah. the way we wrote season four. Yeah. What about the unfold, and not just the conclusion of these storylines, um, but in terms of an approach to story, did it, did, it, did it change in terms of, not? I mean, obviously, when you know what your final season, you're writing towards it, but, but even just in terms of the approach of how the stories unfold um, or a philosophy of telling the story, did anything kind of change for you guys in, do, oh, in doing yeah. that? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think with, you know, in four, we knew, even though we, we did our due diligence on the, the technological story that would be our laundry line from which to hang what was happening. Um, we knew that it was, I think we, we made a conscious decision to have it be most, the most in the background the tech had been. Uh, season one, I think it was the most, it was the, at the forefront of what was going on. And by season four, it was really the story about the relationships between the people. Mm. You know, it was can Donna and Cameron heal wounds? Can Joe and Cameron finally make it work? is Gordon actually going to stay happy? You know, like these were things we were, that was what was driving a lot of the character plot um, set against the background of the tech. You know, that, that said, we still got to do a lot of fun tech stuff, but I, I, you know, it was a family story by the end. Yeah, and, and everything's on the table in a, in a season like that, which is amazing because, uh, you know, I certainly watch TV now, unfortunately, with an insider's POV where I kind of say like, they don't have the budget for this to turn into a battle, or like this guy's a series regular, he's gonna be fine. You know, like there's there, that it, living room. There set. are choices you can't make, and so you're rarely surprised. And, and, and the shows I really love are shows that consistently surprise me. And I felt like we were able to make bigger, bolder choices that you kind of can't make if if you know, you know, you're an ongoing series in the last. And that was, I don't know, I I loved it. I really felt like the gloves were off, and, and the writers embraced that. You know, the seasons always had that structure. There's always that 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 one thing, the race to the to the one technical thing. Mm -hmm. And there was always that element that some element of our team, or maybe all four of them, were, you know, we could see that they were on the right path. And then there was the pers interpersonal stuff that was always kind of getting in the way, that was stopping them from doing, the, you know, being the superhero alliance that we wanted them to be. And it just seemed like in season four, you know, it, it was it, the, 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 when they, 
Yahoo is built into the Netscape browser. It almost yeah. is like anticlimactic. Yeah. It almost is like, and the story became a, almost a realization of those characters realizing that 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 what was this, uh, it gets you to the people, mm -hmm. you know, and and that, and there was that element of not only the way that you guys were telling the story, but also a, a certain realization of these characters, a maturity of these characters, and you think about you know. I think about the sense of these anti-hero stories where it becomes this thing where the character can't change, they're just gonna keep mm -hmm. running the wheels. And, 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 and in this sense, all of these characters have evolved, but they've also come to a certain realization about life and, and about things. And in and, and, and that sense, in, 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 which is beautiful, um, but there's also just an element is, is that when you're going towards a finale um, and you're going towards a conclusion, if you're going towards a third act, in general, you speed up the story. Mm -hmm. You condense the story. You don't do these omissions. You guys continue to do like omissions mm -hmm. inside episodes. It's expanding. It's slowing. It becomes this thing, and it, it it made me think about a lot about. I mean, it was beautiful in and of itself. It was great, but there's also just this element of serialized TV is becoming very difficult because we can see oh, okay, they're reshuffling the deck for this season and adding this. It's like you kind of see the yeah. formula. Uh -huh. And it just made me think of, and, and I, I'm having trouble going season to season with shows. Yeah. I, I like things. I'll watch the first season and I, I'm not going to do this. And it, it, it's interesting to me is I wonder if, 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 if in telling these character stories you haven't stumbled upon something of how shows can evolve in this serialization and almost that thing that's underneath the narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, screw it. We're not putting it there anymore. It's it's yeah, it's, it's up on the here. top. I think that it's something that we really fortuitously discovered. I think that um, this idea of the characters don't have to linearly pursue something and then win, you know, or tragically lose. I think we looked at this idea of loser, and which is a pejorative term in the American context, and we said, well, how can we redefine that to make these people human beings? And we thought that the greatest gift we could give Joe McMillan was to lose and for him to be okay with it. Uh, and getting him to that place felt really mm -hmm. wonderful for him. I mean, I think his conclusion in the series was one of my favorites. Um, it, it's difficult to get there and do it in the right way. But at the same time, you know, getting these characters off the wheel um, felt right. And, and, you know, even with Cameron and Donna maybe, you know, continuing. I think they're doing it with a newfound understanding. And I, I think that that kind, of, that kind of focus on the human element of it and its nuance helps get away from maybe some of the more conventional expected aspects of the storytelling that we, that, you know, we all can fall prey to in this industry, including us. Well, um, well, and you're pointing to something interesting too, which is I think in the fourth season, the characters almost become aware of the pattern of the show and acknowledge <laughs> it in that moment. And, and I think that's, you know, what we, you know, you've used some of the verbiage already, this idea of like recursion, this idea of the wheel, this idea of the cycle. Uh, and so by kind of having them kind of point to the wheel that they've been on and, and kind of have reactions to it at the end, that, that did kind of feel, like I remember when the Yahoo thing happens at the end of season four, it was the first time in the room that we just called it getting halt and catch fired. Mm -hmm. You know, because it was clearly the mechanism that had kind of bummed out and overtaken our characters at the end of each season. Uh, and to be able to kind of comment on that from within the world of the show did feel like closing the loop in a satisfying way for us. Because I know exactly what you mean there. Or 
you begin a new season of a show and you say, okay, we're gonna trot out our new guest stars here and okay, we're gonna just like lay the groundwork for all of our new plots and that's, I don't know. There, there's always something that kind of feels false and from the outside about that. Um, and I don't know if we found the antidote forever, but I think to have the characters be almost as smart as you are in terms of being able to kind of observe their own lives was at least a start for us on that. It's like, you know, it, it makes me think of a lot of season two of The Wire, where people, I don't know if people were ready for that then, you know what I mean? Where it was like, we're going to put McNulty on a boat. What? You know what I mean? It was like, and we're not going to see him. And all of a sudden, Polish union workers. Yeah, and it was like, holy moly. And, and, but you, you can do that. And I think that people are, because the market is so saturated now, and because there are limitless options, I mean, you're up against not only you know, a new show that's premiering when your new season is out, but you're also up against like season four of Cheers, mm -hmm. given the back catalog of everything. People are ready to just like it's like just do something. You know what I mean? Like I think that I kind of I I'm I'm with you. Like I get a little bored when I'm when those characters are having the same conversations where they're not saying anything to each other on that same sofa, and it could be a scene from season one. Um, I think that the opportunity is there to just go nuts a little bit. There's also something that was fortuitous about it, which is that your characters, I mean, they don't lose. They end up doing very well for themselves. Sure. They have lives Loses, for them. Yeah. yeah. But they do lose in yeah. the premise of the original show of, of, you know, we know, you know, you live in, your movie is, your, your show is grounded in a world in which, you know, Netscape exists and, 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 and in which all these different elements exist, and so therefore they're not going to be the one that broke through and did something. And so there is that thing of also, I feel like, you're writing towards a conclusion of acceptance of, <laughs> yeah. is there going to be an ultimate defeat, or are there, is there going to be an element of this really becomes more about the relationships and the people and this understanding? Um, Want to just a couple follow-up. The Phoenix scene in the finale, which was, which, is, which was also along these same lines a fairly bold decision in terms of a story. Um, is, is it, where did that impetus for that come from? What was, the, was that something someone just wrote? Yeah, you just, you just think of it. I, I, yeah, I was on the train. Yeah. I was on the train. Yeah. I take the train to work. Uh, you take the train in Los Angeles? <laughs> yes, like Leonardo DiCaprio in Revolutionary Road. <laughs> uh, although not as sad. But I, I was coming in, and um, we were thinking of what could happen, and I thought of, we were kind of stuck on this idea of Donna and Cameron, they, their dream had been interrupted in this ugly way, and now they were becoming close again, and, and there was going to be that question of, will they work together again? Right, that binary and, thing we were talking about. Right, and, and it, felt, it felt like we could endeavor to start that, but if we didn't, people would always wonder, and so we had them play out the whole scenario of how it would go. And speaking to your point earlier about awareness, right, and becoming aware mm -hmm. of, of what's happening in the show and in their lives, they're able to project exactly, you know, what, what's going to happen. And I, I think that, that allowed the character to go, the characters to go from knowledge of what works in technology to wisdom of how it works in technology. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that old saying of knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad, right? Like, they know not to make the fruit salad, you know, by the end of that Phoenix scene. And, and that, to us, took them to a new emotional level. So even though later on when they're like, I've got an idea, they, they're coming at it with that newfound wisdom. 
And Donna's uh, speech at her pool party at the end. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I think you would, your father had worked in... No, Chris's father. Your, yeah. We're um, Chris. Chris yeah. Campbell's Chris, <laughs> yeah. um, Chris's dad was a yeah. salesman, too, though, so yeah. yeah. But there seems to be an element, and I don't know where this came from, and my guess is probably in the evolution of writing the show and doing more research, but a, um, an, un, an understanding of what this history has meant from the women in tech. Mm -hmm. And there is this, I, I'm one to not really like big speeches, or to, but there became an element that I think was very important there and it was very emotional um, uh, of, of kind of, kind of circling back on a lot of things that we had, we had kind of watched evolve in this. I'm wondering if you could, it, it, that sense of what this history meant for women, is that something um, that kind of evolved? Is that something you kind of learned in the process of making this show? Is this, it was, this a, was this a new period of research that you kind of did and talking, talking to women of that generation? I mean, and, and that was, you know, that was a really emotional thing to be on set for. And I think our feeling was you get one speech like that and you, you earn it at the end of four seasons of a show because I, I think it was never, we always wanted to not preach, but we wanted to kind of, you know, put a human face on, on these issues. So, you know, we, we do sneak in facts here and there about how computers were marketed as toys for boys and you never see a woman in a computer advertisement that isn't wearing a bikini, you know, and that, you know, the reason, you know, men end up kind of predominating in, in those tech fields uh, after the 1980s is because of that marketing. I mean, we, we really kind of tried to put that in around the edges, but at the same time, we never wanted to turn to the camera and say, you know, feel this way about this. But it really felt true for that character at the end of that journey to, to kind of give a, a, an actual speech to it. And so I do think that was one of the most difficult things we kind of learned in the research was how much it kind of had gone away from even a trend that wasn't this way in the 1970s, that there were more people kind of in, in STEM fields. Uh, and as men writing about that, you know, we, we didn't want to, I don't know, we, we didn't want to be like mansplaining it, but, uh, but I think we had amazing women, you know, in the writer's room, producing, directing, on set, the actresses that, that kind of demanded it and embraced it and, and really kind of, I don't know, uh, helped us kind of see the value of getting that message out there in the way we did. And, and it was and nice that to that come out matters. and say it. Yeah. You know, I think that the show was ending and we had been dealing with those two female characters for so long and their struggles mm -hmm. and we were seeing it without having to comment on it a bunch because I feel like that would have shortchanged it. But to come out and just say it was, mm -hmm. was I think, earned at that yeah. point. It's funny to even talk about that because you don't want to like congratulate yourself for pointing out like a thing that just was, you know. <laughs> that wasn't great. No, yeah. But the only thing, yeah. though, the only thing is though, there is, there is an element though, which is, and I, you guys tell me, I don't think that was something that was baked into the pilot, the, pilot, the no. first season, the pitch, you know, that evolution of the Donna character. I mean, you can kind of see how she was written in the pilot that this is the wife character. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that is about this is how these shows evolve and all these shows evolve. But I mean, I think to be as open as you guys were to go in the directions that you were um, is pretty remarkable. Um, I don't go to discussion boards and I haven't talked about the show with anybody and I also haven't <laughs> This is, uh, so I apologize if this has already been dealt with. My, the very, very last, uh, well, I guess it's not the last scene, but the, the, the diner. Oh, yeah. My assumption was that with the jukebox, the idea, <laughs> the idea, <laughs> it's tough. the idea was the iPod. 
or it's something like that. Everything that Donna looks at, and there's even stuff before she starts noticing things in the diner. Um, everything in the diner that is featured in uh, coverage is analog. So the waitress taking notes from an order from two old guys mm -hmm. is on a pad of paper. There's a dude at the counter reading a book mm -hmm. and somebody's reading a paper. Mm -hmm. There's the jukebox and there's the cash register, mm -hmm. uh, which is also uh, analog. So there's a bunch of stuff hidden in there. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a little bit... Um, I'm not wrong. You I'm may not, take from it. You're, you're not may, wrong. Nobody is wrong. Roland Bart once said, the death of the author means that once you put a thing out in the world, it belongs <laughs> to everyone. The author again. Uh, you're too young for me to be thinking yeah, about the death of the author. <laughs> I, I, think, um, I, I think we didn't want there to be one right answer, and we want people... I always think it's satisfying as a viewer yeah, to, to make yeah. your own choice. And I think it, it was important Long to cop us out. that, Long that cop it was out. like... Yeah. The, the, the real thing was it was like... The idea was the means to an end, right? It was, it was. If the project gets you to the people, it was, it was whatever Donna thought of in that you moment that got her back to, got back to Cameron. I'm not wrong. IPod. I'm not wrong. Um, it was the iPod. Yeah, a wonderful cast. Um, um, but one thing that's very interesting here is, is that you, the, the, their evolution, they become different, they become different people, in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, Mackenzie Davis is, is an actress who. I have always really enjoyed um, in that um, way that the nervous energy becomes this physical thing, which as young Cameron and the way that you kind of built out this punk character that is like this great programmer and kind of everything about her is, is, is amazing. Now, obviously Mackenzie got older in the process of making the show, but she only got four years older. <laughs> and, and there is also, an, but, but this is less even about age because I don't know that physically, I mean, obviously you're dressing her differently, but there's an element that was really striking to me about how she took all of those things and age came in, she's still Cameron, she still has that nervous energy, but there's like a, something in her physicality in season four that really spoke to me about a certain piece that she was finding or like the way that she was handling unrest. And it was, it, it, that evolution of watching that was pretty, pretty remarkable, you know? Yeah. And I was wondering, working with her and kind of like how that, that element, because she's also the trickiest one to age. Yes. Because she's like, I think she's like supposed to be like 20. Well, she's 22. She's, she's playing, I think she was playing four years younger than she was in season one. And then she's playing four years older than she was in yeah. season She turned 30 four. on set during, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, but, but it's it even, was, but the was, thing is though, it's yeah. less about one of these things where it, it's about the physical aspect of it. There's right. also something about the physicality of how well, she Well, that was what was great about, you know, with the casting process, you know, we had Sharon Bialy and Sherry Thomas with us. And, you know, they, they cast Breaking Bad and, you know, Aaron Paul and finding these people that are amazing. And going a little against type, I think, really helped us with all of the actors. If we had leaned heavily into what was on the page, on that surface level, I think we wouldn't have had as dynamic uh, of characters or performances to write to. Because I think one thing we did in the writers' room was we saw what was happening on screen and we wrote to those things. You know, like in real life, Scoop McNary is is from Texas and you know, like has a farm and knows how to fix a tractor and like I mean, he's a, you know has been in several bar fights. You know, like it, and then to have him play a computer engineer. You know, it brings a level of that. I think with Mackenzie, what was amazing about Mackenzie, and, and this is true for a lot of us with the show, is that, you know, I feel like the show really paralleled her professional life just as an actor because I think when she came on board to Halt, she had 
she had a couple screen credits yeah, and she had a lot of attention on her but you know she she was kind of had this tough exterior as Cameron but underneath had that nervous energy and 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 played it almost like a uh, there was a childlike quality to her and a nervousness a scared kid in this huge adult world um, you know I, I always think of the scene from season one where she's living in the office because she's too scared to get her own place and she's just listening to like the Cocteau twins on her on her headphones and just dancing around the mm-hmm. the office and it just feels almost Peter Pan like you know with the character and then by the end of the show um, she's so seasoned and and has been through a lot both as the character and you know also Mackenzie at that point and off shooting Blade Runner and she's off I mean she's doing all these crazy things so she's able to bring that kind of maturity to it she's also the one that grows up the most in, yeah. a, in a traditional sense and that you know especially I, th- I think it's interesting to watch anyone that kind of starts in an anti-establishment place get older you know and, and kind of make those those compromises and get hurt and and kind of get changed and uh, I think she took that really seriously and kept us honest. I mean, we would bring them all into the writer's room one at a time at the beginning of each season to kind of talk about the character and what do you think's going on and, you know, how would you answer this question? Um, and they were all incredibly considerate about that. But but I feel like, you know, some of the things Mackenzie kind of reflected back to us, we, we put directly into that four-season character. And, I mean, I, I know even the physicality of it was something she kind of prepared and came in with. And so mm-hmm. we get a lot of credit for great work she did. Um, and last, I, acting is not something I write about or think about much. I'm more of a filmmaking guy. And so it, even I don't I don't handle a lot of... It is, acting is just the element of filmmaking that I don't really uh, think about or study too much. Um, so I need you guys to explain something to me. Uh-huh. Why is Scoop McNary... I'm saying his name right, right? Yeah. Why can I not stop watching him in anything? He plays this little, like he 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 plays a very quiet character. I mean, uh, in most in most of the stuff he does, I, I I won't say what it was. There was a show that I could care less about that he was in, and and suddenly I I, I ended up sticking with it way too long because I just been started. <laughs> I just I can't stop. What what? Because there's nothing big about him, and there's nothing yeah. obvious about him in his performance, but there's something about him that is just very dynamic and, and gravitating. And I, I say this because it clearly you wrote Gordon as something that wasn't what he became. So clearly you saw. Yeah, I think you know that was the fun thing about getting Scoot for Gordon. Because I mean, we also talked about Scoot for Joe. Like I mean, very early on, right? When you're mixing all these different pieces together, and you know that was shortly before we met Lee. But I mean, uh, you know, Scoot lives in the character so much, more than I think he'll let on. Um, he really puts it on. I mean, he, he just wears it. Um, and, and they all do to an extent, but he, he's able to just put it on completely and then also and then immediately take it off which is also incredible that's what messes that's me up about because he'll come yeah he'll, it's because he'll, he'll cry and then be like i have a cigarette you know yeah, like, yeah he'll like, come over and be like crying yeah he'd be like yeah did you see the cowboys game yesterday and and you oh know he God. goes and does something intense so what I, he has this incredible ability to to play typically or conventionally unlikable people or people who do unlikable things which gordon was certainly guilty of in halt but bring a humanity to it where you understand it on some level and you still end up liking him. I mean, you still, you get him as a human being. He's able to do that. And I think that is what draws people in um, more than anything else, just because he, you know, you're like, man, if I would never get away with that, you know, uh, 
but he, he does, and he's, he's able to make you understand him in a cool way. Uh, so what, what are you, what, what's going on with you guys now? What's, one of you has a movie I saw. He's directing a movie. I just directed a movie, yeah. yeah. I just directed a movie that Mark Johnson produced and Scoot was in, uh-huh. uh, along with Aaron Paul. And, and that was super fun. And Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead was in it too. And, uh, but the, one of the, the primary character, along with Aaron, is, is a, a 10-year-old deaf boy. Um, and that was, that was pretty incredible. And Scoot plays his dad. And as I say about Scoot doing things or acting in certain ways where you'd be like, that person is terrible. Uh, but when he does it, it lends a humanity to it. He really does that. Um, with this What's movie. The What's the name of it? The movie's called The Parts You Lose. Okay, when's yeah. that coming out? Uh, it's going to go to the festival circuit this fall, so we'll yep. see where we go, and then and then I think it'll come out sometime after that. And how about, are you, are you, are you both still working in television? Are you still writing? Coming yeah. Coming up show ideas? Yeah, I, uh, I just did a, a movie for Focus that, that'll hopefully go into production later this year, but I probably can't tell you the title of it now. Uh, and then on the TV side, we're doing something new for AMC that, you know, yep. success could go to room early next year, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in the you're in the kind of plotting phase of that, trying to figure out what it is. We're just about ready to talk to them about going to pilot script. <laughs> so we'll see how long that takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And Mark and Melissa are on that too. All right. Yeah. All right. Well thanks for coming in guys. Thanks Thank you so us. much.